Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. This week I read about a man named Alvin Cavan. The author begins, I'd estimate Alvin weighs about 90 pounds, but 89 of those pounds make up his big heart. He keeps busy by giving to others, says Connie Moore, activity director at Cedar Crest Nursing Home in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. Alvin, who is 89 years old, is a volunteer with a big heart and a big Stetson hat. He began coming to the nursing facility when his wife, May, an Alzheimer's patient, was admitted. Though retired from operating a dairy farm, Alvin milked almost a dozen cows before arriving for breakfast with his wife. Between lunch and supper, Alvin came to replenish Mary's ice pitcher. Before long, he volunteered to fill every other residence also. Even after May went to be with the Lord, Alvin continued to help out at Cedar Crest Manor. At supper, he would set out napkins and coffee cups. If if residents needed assistance with their wheelchairs, they got Mr. Alvin's escort service. Alvin explains, Life is so much better when you get your priorities straight. It begins when you make the Lord your first priority. That is so true, isn't it? The day we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Lord and others is the day that we truly begin to live the lives the way that God has designed for us. Last week, we began looking at the account of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. As always, Jesus, who is our perfect example, never asked us to do anything that he wouldn't do, even though he was the only person among all of humanity exempt from having to do such things. We pick back up in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Good old Peter. Sometimes the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet. In keeping with his impulsive nature, Peter immediately jumped to the opposite extreme. Sometimes it seems like Peter has taken some sort of powerful verbal laxative, and his words are just completely out of control. As an aside, Proverbs tells us that when words are many, sin is not absent. Now, we talked about this at home group last Sunday. This remarkable statement means there is a direct correlation between the number of words that we say and the number of sins that we commit. It also means one of the most simple ways to cut down on sin is to stop talking so much. So here, Peter's basically rebuking the Lord. Now, the Greek here is even more forceful. There is a strong double negative there in verse 8. The Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss translated Peter's statement like this, You shall by no means wash my feet, no, never. And Peter really meant it. Then when he discovered that to refuse the Lord would mean to lose the Lord's fellowship, he went in the opposite direction and asked to have a complete bath. Now, we learned last week that foot washing was a servant's task and not something to be done by the master. The the Midrash specified that foot washing cannot even be required of a Hebrew slave. The master dressed in a servant's towel? Absurd. Never. 
Peter was humble enough to feel the incongruity of having his feet washed by Jesus, but was not humble enough to refrain from telling his master what to do, replied, You shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter can't figure it out. Peter says, What are you doing down there? You see, Peter does not realize what dire straits he is truly in. He doesn't realize that he needs a dying Savior. He doesn't realize he needs a foot-washing Savior. Therefore, he has a great deal of trouble understanding what would cause a person seated at the position of honor to do something so strange and so weird. So he says, get up, Jesus. What are you doing that to me for? He doesn't see his need. In the same way this morning, if you also find the idea of Jesus having to die for you, to pay your penalty so you could be accepted by God, do you feel that that is a repugnant doctrine? Do you feel like, well, I'm not all that bad. I don't believe God is really that angry with my sin. Your problem, the reason why you can't find God It's because Jesus is not too far away and too high. It's because he's too near and too low. Jesus says to Peter, unless you let me wash you, you can have no part with me. Unless you see that you need to be washed. The way to find God in some ways is not to look up. It's to look down. The way to find God is to see that you are so sinful and weak and helpless that he had to die for you. He had to do that. He had to get down that low. Oh, servant king, would you do this for me? That's how a Christian life begins with those words. It's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, if you do not let me be who I am, if you do not let me stoop down on your behalf to cleanse you, you will have no fellowship with me and you cannot enter the kingdom. Peter, something needs to be done to you And unless I do it, you can have no part with me. That something, of course, was the cross. Only the ultimate act of service, only the ultimate act of stooping down can cleanse us from our sins. Now, people think the reason we can't find God is because he's too distant and too high. But that's not true. The Bible says the reason you can't find God is because he's too close and he's too low. He's at your face. I mean, he's right there where you are. Is God sort of like a Delphic oracle who only speaks in riddles? So you have to be kind of like a genius to unravel what he says? Is God someone who hides at the top of a mountain? And you can only find him by cunning and bravery like Indiana Jones. No. The Bible says Jesus has come right up into our faces. He's at our feet and he's died for us. And he's saying to us this morning, now would you give yourself to me in the same way that I have given myself to you? And that's the rub, isn't it? We sing, oh, to be like Jesus. But what if that means stooping down and serving everyone but ourselves? Yet Jesus Christ takes the position of a sort of a slave below slaves, and he turns to his friends and he says, My brothers, how many times do I have to tell you? This is what life is about. 
This is what I'm about. This is what I live for. Think of it this way. If somebody gave you a machine that was full of lights and cogs and beeps, and they said, here, this is a present for you, and it's very impressive. You say, well, it's very busy, and it's impressive, but what's it for? What if your friend said, well, I don't know what it's for? You'd say, well, then what good is it? We have to find out what it's for. Let's ask the ones who made it. Is there a label on it anywhere? Let's ask the manufacturers what this thing is for. Now, look at ourselves. We're so busy. Our lives are full of lights and beeps and cogs. It's the merry-go-round that won't stop, the giant Xbox on steroids that nobody can turn off, and here we are right in the middle of it. We're so busy, and our life is full of lights and cogs and beeps. The question is, what is it for? What is life really all about? As soon as you start to ask any kind of substantial question, look at this wonderful machine. Look at my life. Look at all the wheels, the lights, and the noises, and the bells, and the beeps. As soon as you say, what is it for? What really matters? What is life all about? What does that mean? You've now entered into the arena of faith. Because in the same way, the only way to find out what this machine is for and what life is about is by getting in touch with the manufacturer. And here you have Jesus, the manufacturer, and he is saying, let me tell you what life is all about. Let me tell you what I'm about. Let me tell you what you should be about. It's for this kind of greatness. It's for this inside-out kind of greatness. Life is about kneeling love. Life is about love that gets down on our knees and comes down off of its throne. Jesus says, this is what I'm about, and this is what you should be about. And my friends, until we understand that, all the beeps and all the whizzes and all the whirls and all the lights are going to mean nothing in our lives. So basically what Jesus is saying here is this. This is what you should be living for. This is what I'm living for. And this is what you should be living for. And it's kneeling servant type of love. Let's ask this question. Do we even know what a servant is? Do you know what the heart of a servant is? A servant's heart is one that gets up and says, I don't know whose fault this is. I know it's not my fault, but I'll tell you what, I'll bear the cost. I'll take the hit. I'll be the one. Let it be me. Jesus Christ, when he got up from that table, he decided, look, somebody has to clean off these feet, and nobody wants to do it. Nobody here wants to get down and do it. So he says, somebody has to do it. It's not my job, but I'm going to make it my job. It's not my fault, but I'm going to do it anyway. Who's going to take the hit? There's always a cost. There has been a wrongdoing that has brought about this situation, but now there's a cost, and so the only question is, who's going to absorb that cost? What he is actually saying is, this is just a picture of the fact that I've come to take up on myself the cost of all the sins of the entire world. 
Now think about that. The sins of the world, the misery of the world. Who caused it? Well, the answers are complex, but we cannot deny that the world is a wreck. We can't deny that there's tremendous greed and selfishness and infinite cruelty and immense misery. So who's to blame? Well, everybody says, well, it's really not my fault. Who, though, is going to bear the cost of it? For example, some of us look even at our own lives. You know you've been badly mistreated. You've been very badly mistreated by some people. Who's going to bear the cost of that? Well, you say, I'm bearing the cost of it, but I shouldn't. They should bear the cost of it. All right. But think about this. Maybe they mistreated you because they were messed up and somebody has badly mistreated them. So who's going to bear the cost for them? What about the fact that some people think that you're the reason that they have problems in their lives? Who will bear that cost? Just Christ, he gets up and he says, I'll take the hit and I'll bear the cost. Now we're talking about the infinite misery and cruelty of the sins of all the centuries. And Jesus Christ came and took it all upon himself. Do we see, therefore, the magnitude of what he suffered? Do we see the fact that he suffered estrangement and alienation? He suffered spiritual despair. He suffered physical torture. God himself poured out the hot lava of divine justice, everything that sin deserved upon his only begotten son. And yet, he was the servant king. He got down on his knees. He left his place and he knelt low. That's what his mission was about. Behold this morning your servant king. A.B. Bruce, a 19th century scholar, put it like this. If Christ may not humble himself, then he cannot deliver us from the curse of the law or from the fear of death. He cannot help us when we are tempted. He cannot wash our feet. Nay, what is a far more serious matter, he cannot wash our souls. Unless the Son of God lay down his life, we remain in the dirt of sin and shame. Look at verse 9 with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. For he knew of betrayal. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. First, let's make it clear that it's only by the blood of Christ that any person can ever be made clean. Now, the Apostle Paul realized that all of his old covenant legalism was no more valuable, valuable to him and no less offensive to God than if he tried to offer a pile of manure on the altar. Paul was awakened to the truth of Isaiah 64, 6, where we read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That Hebrew noun that Isaiah used there speaks of a scrap of fabric that has been soiled and stained with an unclean bodily discharge. It was fit for nothing but for burning. 
Now, this is purposely repulsive imagery, but it shows how God views all attempts by sinners to earn righteousness under the law. And with that said, at first glance, Peter appears very humble, as if to say, Oh, Lord, I should be washing your feet instead. But I don't think this was his meaning. I think this was self-assertive pride that refuses to accept grace from another, the kind that will not be vulnerable in front of other people. If Peter had dirty feet, he would take care of washing them himself. No charity needed here. Thank you very much. Then Jesus reminded Peter that eternity is not his to enjoy apart from grace. Once again, Peter, not being a man of moderation, ran to the other extreme, requesting a complete bath. But here, Jesus rejects his interpretation of what the foot washing was meant to show them. Because Peter had believed in the Son of God and had received salvation from sin by grace, he was already clean. Perhaps we could say he was once bathed, always bathed. That's theological humor right there. Um, yeah, I won't say it next time. Like I'll be alive next time we do this. However, the grace of God continues throughout the life of the believer whose feet does collect dust from the world. Now here the somewhat confusing dialogue clears up at least partially. For it is evident that Jesus is talking not about physical dirt, but about sin and the need to be cleansed from that sin. He is explaining that Peter is a justified person and therefore only needs cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin, but not pardon from sin's penalty. Now, the image involved there is of an Oriental who had bathed completely before going to another person's house for dinner. On the way, because he would be shot in sandals and because the, sweet, the streets would be dirty, his feet would become contaminated. And so when he arrived at his friend's home, just his feet would need to be washed, not his entire body. In a parallel way, those who are Christ are totally justified men and women. But they do need constant cleansing from their repeated defilement by sin in order that the fellowship they have with the Father and the Son might not be broken. You have to get this. We are not talking about our relationship but only our fellowship that can be broken by sin. You see, there are three tenses of salvation. They go like this. First, I have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin by a crucified Savior. Second, I am being saved in the present from the power of sin by a living Savior. And third, I shall be saved in the future by the, from the presence of sin by a coming Savior. I like that. I would add to that, when we are saved, that's justification. We are now being saved, that's sanctification. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin, and that's what the Bible calls glorification. Or I could use another alliteration, and we could say that salvation is positional, then progressive, and then permanent. What that means is when God bathes us all over in salvation, he brings about a union with Christ, and that is a settled relationship that cannot be changed, I believe, if you have been truly converted. Now, the verb wash in John 13.10 is in the perfect tense, which means it is settled once and for all. Now, however, 
James 1.27 teaches us that our communion, our fellowship with Christ, depends on our keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Well, what does that mean? If we permit unconfessed sin in our lives, we hinder our walk with the Lord, and that is when we need to have our feet washed. And while the believer has been cleansed of sin in the legal sense, past, present, and future, they will never be counted against him again. Although that is true, the believer will continually struggle to remain clean experientially before entering eternity. So Jesus is telling Peter that he does not need to be born again and again and again. To be born again once is enough. Nevertheless, as regenerated people, we do need to come to Christ for ongoing cleansing. I want to drive this point home this morning. It's not about losing salvation. It's about losing our intimacy with the Savior. Now, in Exodus 30, we see an Old Testament illustration of this New Testament principle. You see, when a priest was first called, he was washed head to toe in a ceremonial bathing equivalent to our baptism today. But from that point on, although he never needed to have a head-to-toe washing again, before he would enter the tabernacle, he would wash his hands and his feet in the labor that stood in the tabernacle, tabernacle courtyard. Otherwise, although he would still be a priest, although he would still be a son of Aaron, he wouldn't be allowed to access the tabernacle and would therefore be hindered in his ability to minister and also to receive blessings. So, too, as the priests needed a continual cleansing of their hands and feet, we need a continual cleansing of our hearts through confession. Now, John will later expound on this in his first epistle when he writes, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all of our sins. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Now, the word translated confess there in Scripture is homologeo, or to, it means to speak the same thing. So confession is only really not promising I'm never going to sin again, but it's rather saying, Father, your word is right on this matter. That's sin, and I confess it as such. Have mercy upon me, Lord, and deal with me. When the sinner trusts the Savior, he is bathed all over and his sins are washed away and forgiven. However, as we walk throughout this dark world, it is very easy to become defiled. But we do not need to be bathed all over again. We simply need to have that defilement cleansed away. And God promises, us, promises to cleanse us if we just confess our sins to him. Now, if you're not a confessor, you can start to think, I can see why I'm being blessed. It makes sense. Because the Lord chose me, he made a really wise choice. But when you're in a mode of continual confession and you realize how your heart truly is, those kind of thoughts will never enter your mind. Instead, you'll say, Lord, it's only because of your mercies that I'm not consumed. And great is your faithfulness. I'll also add that unconfessed sin in any area provides the bricks from which the enemy can build a stronghold in our life. 
And from that, he manipulates you over and over again. And that particular sin becomes an addiction, a habit, and a part of your life to be used at will by the enemy. How did I get here, we ask? How did I get so entangled? How did I get so caught up in that attitude or that particular sin? I believe the answer can be found at the point where we begin to say, I don't need to confess it, for it is right then that the enemy begins starting to build his stronghold in your life. If you don't let me wash your feet, Jesus says, you can have no part with me. You don't need to be baptized again. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need a bath, Peter. You just need your feet washed. And so do we. But the Lord's words also mean that there's only those cleansed by him have a relationship to him. You see, washing is a common metaphor for spiritual cleansing. And only those who place their faith in Christ as Lord and confess their sins are cleansed by him and united to him in eternal life. So once again, the model is not a picture of salvation, but of sanctification, not of conversion, but of confession. As I walk through this world, I get dirty feet. And here's Jesus, who not only pours out the truth of purity, but then makes the application for you and me as he washes us continually. Okay, Pastor Bill. I get that I need to have my feet cleansed on an ongoing basis, but how do I do that? Well, first, as I have said, it is to lead a life of confession. And secondly, the water speaks of the word of God. You are cleansed through the word which I have spoken to you, Jesus will say in chapter 15. We are washed in Ephesians 5, says Paul, by the water of the word. I can't possibly overstress the importance of studying your Bible. So there's a cleansing that occurs every time I pick up the Word of God and read it. And you and I, if we are wanting God's way in our lives, even today, we're going to leave this room different than the way that we came in. One author writes, A friend of mine described the reaction when he went home as a young teenager and announced to his mother that he'd become a Christian. Alarmed, she thought he had joined some kind of cult. They brainwashed you, she said. Well, he was ready with the right answer. He said, if you'd seen what was in my brain, you'd realize that it needed washing. Now, of course he hadn't been brainwashed. In fact, again and again, when people bring their lives, their outer lives and their inner lives into the light of Christ, things then begin to become clear to them. If anything, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us, persuading us in a thousand subtle ways that this present world is the only world that there is. This is seldom argued. Rather, a mood is created in which it seems so much easier for us to go with the flow. That's what happens in true brainwashing. What the gospel does is to administer a sharp jolt, to shine a bright light, to kickstart the brain and our moral sensibility to working properly for maybe the first time. And at the end there, just as he dried the disciples' feet, what's Jesus doing for us at this moment? 
He is interceding for us, and he is going to complete the job. He'll not leave us all wet. He'll dry our feet, and he's going to see us through. Jesus then shocks everyone in the room by telling them that not everyone in that room was clean. I think he wanted to make sure that the rest of the disciples understood that when the betrayal and arrest took place, that Jesus was not a surprise victim of Judas's treachery. Otherwise, they might wonder why he chose Judas and how he could have so completely misjudged his character. So John was careful to point out that Peter and Judas were in a different relationship with Jesus. Yes, Jesus washed Judas' feet, but it did Judas no good because he had not been bathed all over. Now, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to de just devastate Judas with the unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of his betrayer. Once again, he never asks us to do anything that he won't do. And so consistent with his command to show love to one's enemies, he did just that. But tragically, Judas was unmoved by the Lord's manifestation of love for him. The same act that drew the others to Christ repelled him. As we close this morning, the late Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigators, was visiting Taiwan on one of his overseas trips. During the visit, he hiked with a Taiwanese pastor back into one of the mountain villages to meet with some of the national Christians. Now, the roads and trails were very wet, and their shoes became very muddy. Later, someone asked this Taiwanese pastor what he remembered the most about Dawson Trotman. Without hesitation, the man replied, he cleaned my shoes. How surprised this humble national pastor must have been to arise that morning and realize that the Christian leader from America had risen before him and cleaned the mud off of his shoes. Now, such a spirit of servanthood marked Dawson Trotman's life. And by the way, Dawson Trotman died the way that he lived, actually giving his life to rescue someone else from drowning. Now, we may not be called to give our physical life in service, but all of us are called to give our lives in service as we strive to consider each other as better than ourselves. Let us pray. Dear Lord, let our lives be marked by service, first to our servant king and then to those who you bring us in contact with. Save us from our own selfish motives and let us remember that it's far more blessed to give than to receive. And I pray that you would help this pastor live out the things that he's telling these people. We ask these things in the name of the only God that would wash feet. Amen.